Armada readers, my name is Ratnaguna and I have the great pleasure of having Advaya Chitta with me today. Hello Advaya Chitta, how are you? Hello Ratnaguna, I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> Good. This is our third interview in fact. We're doing a series of interviews on various topics. Uh, the first topic we did, as far as I remember, was consciousness and rebirth, consciousness and rebirth, which is a fascinating interview. And the second was also fascinating on music. Uh, music, meaning and mantra. Really tremendous stuff. Uh, so here we are again. But today we've got a different topic. Um, we've got a topic uh, around Buddhism and psychotherapy, Buddhism and psychology. Um, and we're going to look at various things there. And Advaita is really well placed to talk about these things because he was a clinical psychologist. He's retired now and he's been a practicing Buddhist for many, many years. So it'd be very interesting to hear what he's got to say. So let's start off with Buddhism and psychology or Buddhism and psychotherapy. I don't know which one you want to begin with, but um, obviously Buddhism is concerned with the mind. And uh, sometimes you hear the phrase Buddhist psychology. Um, I don't know if you approve of that that phrase, but uh, I wonder if we can just explore the similarities and the differences between Buddhism, Buddhist psychology and Western psychology. Right. Between Buddhist psychology and, and, and Western psychology, where there's so much that could be said, um, and, and Buddhism, in a way, you could say, is got at the heart of it um, a psychology, or um, it's to do with the human mind, and it's to do with the transformation of the human mind and human behaviour. Um, so that is actually similar to the goals of psychological therapy, especially psychological therapies in the West, which are trying to help people change their mental states and their behavior uh, in positive ways. So there is um, a very definite similarity um, between, if you like, the therapies that come from the West and also, if you like, the practices at the heart of Buddhism. Yeah. What there also is, is a major difference, however, between the two, in that um, you could say that psychological therapies are aimed at helping people get better mental states and also at times better physical states of health um, to help become, if you like, a fully rounded, healthy human being. But the goal of... Buddhism, the goal of the Dharma, is to go well beyond that. That The goal of the Dharma is really about cultivating a profound wisdom and compassion and actually transcending the human realm altogether, going beyond, um, if you like, compulsive rebirth in, uh, in, in existence. And that's certainly not the goal of psychological therapists in, in the West. Um, so there, is, in a way, there is a profound difference in goals, um, but there are very definitely similarities, um, and those similarities have well developed over the last forty years or so, um, partly because practices from Buddhism have been taken up by psychological therapies and become standard parts of therapies or the, the main sort of focus of therapies, for example, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression. 
um, very much um, took on Buddhist mindfulness practice in order to help people um, overcome their their depressed states. Yeah. Mm. Are there any other um, practices that Western psychology has taken on from Buddhism? Yes, for example, compassion-focused ther therapy started by Paul Gilbert um, has taken on practices like compassion therapy, Karuna Bhavana or Metta Bhavana, the loving-kindness meditation, as central aspects of the of, of the therapy, yeah, as well. Hmm. Yes, and Paul Gilbert makes that very clear in his book, The Compassionate Mind, how much he's drawn from the Dharma, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. So um, what you're saying is that the that Western psychology is aimed at making people well, psychologically and physically well. Um, but Buddhism goes much further than that. Is, is there a, a case to be made for them cooperating? Uh, Buddhist, uh, psych, Western psychology helping Buddhists become more happy, more healthy, more human, and then Buddhism taken on from there? Oh, oh yes. I think I, think I wrote, wrote about this 30-odd years ago, that um, anything that helps a Buddhist practitioner become psychologically healthier, you know, as if practices and therapies coming from the West, could, is, is very welcome to, you know, help Buddhists practice and become emotionally stronger and emotionally more healthy. Um, it doesn't have to be just Buddhist practice. We can take whatever works, I think, and that's, that's very important. Mm. And uh, do you think that there are some Buddhists who need psychotherapy in order to practice the Dharma more effectively? So, I think cert certainly in my experience there have been Buddhists who definitely need some form of psychological therapy. Yes, some for fairly specific um, work to, do, to deal um, with very specific issues um, that perhaps, you know, Buddhism um, has not in the past focused upon um, in order to um, resolve the issues from from those um, underlying those conditions underlying those problems um, so at, at times I think Buddhist practitioners do need specific psychotherapeutic help shall we say um, I think there's a vast number of different um, forms of psychotherapy and what ones work and what ones don't that's a huge topic in itself but certainly I think it can be very helpful for, for some practitioners at, at certain points in time yeah the specific understanding and specific practices from a, a form of therapy that can help them overcome and manage particular problems yeah Th that implies that buddhism assumes or the buddha assumed that people were already happy healthy human fairly integrated and so on before they took up the spiritual life no um well very interesting question i don't know the answer to answer to that one i wonder actually whether Back in you know two thousand five hundred years ago, maybe uh, in the conditions there were people were perhaps more psychologically healthy. 
maybe um maybe i'm i'm just speculating here the sort of growing up in a particular um agricultural come tribal culture of the time may have been psychologically speaking um more beneficial mm. um, i think it, i think it's a, it's a, that's a it's a very interesting issue it reminds me of um a little workshop I did oh, about 20 years ago with um, the public preceptors of our order. I did a, did a um, workshop about attachment theory. A attachment theory is, comes from the work of John Balby. It's about how it's very important for a positive, secure attachment to develop between mother and child. Yeah. And that can then form the basis for the child. It gives it the ability to um, cultivate or be in secure attachments with other people later in its life. Yeah. Um, the problem being, if there's insecure attachment between a mother and child, then the child takes its insecure attachment pattern and repeats it later in life and has very difficulty with relationships. Yeah. Now, what I found very interesting was um, I got preceptors to talk with each other about their childhood and you know what sort of attachment behaviour and attachment patterns they experienced. And it was very interesting that um, the order members from India who'd come from the Dalit background, untouchable background. Now, these are people in many ways who were been, you know, one of the most deprived um, groups of people on the, on the planet, you, you could say. Um, it was very interesting, however, that they described much more secure, positive attachment patterns in childhood than say all the europeans that were that were there yeah it's like they they experienced a much more loving kindly um, caring environment amongst their group and i found that very very interesting yeah and if you like it relates to our question perhaps you know the in those sort of um conditions of the in the past despite you know it was a much more poor um you know material situation than we have now people actually experienced more sort of positive um attachment uh, early in their life and therefore they would have been sort of psychologically in a more positive state later on yeah. Very interesting, because I'm just thinking now of the famous Buddhist teaching of non-attachment. We're, we're <laughs> supposed to be practicing until we get to a state of non-attachment. We, we're not attached yeah. to anything at all. Yeah. But now you're talking about positive attachment. So how do those two ideas come together? Well, the word attachment means two different things in, in those cases. Yeah. So I think it's very important, I think, to acknowledge if you like, secure attachment, positive attachments between human beings, yeah. In other words, caring, loving relationships, yeah, where somebody, each person actually matters to the other person, yeah. I think that's very different from 
attachment as it's often uh, used you know, in, in English to refer to an aspect of, of, of Buddhist teaching, which is really attachment in grabbing onto something, holding onto something um, which you don't want to let, let go of because it maintains your identity, shall we say, in, in some way. Now, I think those two sorts of attachment are very, very different. Yes, so uh, the latter that you were speaking about there, you could perhaps call negative attachment. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, um, uh, but does do, do some Buddhists um, misinterpret the meaning of the Buddhist idea of non-attachment so that they they try to be detached from the rest of humanity rather than um, in good, loving communication with everybody, but not needing them? Gosh, I ha haven't thought thought about that particular question. Um, yeah, very very interesting question. I suspect some some would take it like that. It's a way of with with withdrawing, and maybe thinking about it, it one could see it could be um, a sort of false idea that people can could get is that you withdraw from people. Um, you withdraw from relationships um, and you know go your own go your own way. Um, maybe that was um, a characteristic of what Buddhism became in its first few hundred years and why the Mahayana arose to um, counteract that tendency the tendency of withdrawal um, yeah, just doing your own thing for your own, for your own good, as it were. Um, I suspect, you know, it, it, I suspect it's um, something that Buddhists, uh, Buddhists at times can fall into, it may mistakenly fall into, yeah. Mm. So perhaps that um, someone who is uh, fell foul of uh, the attachment that, that they did when they were young mm. and now kind of lives in a slightly detached way from other people, I don't know if that happens. Mm. Um, when they come across Buddhism, they perhaps misunderstanding misunderstand the teaching of non-attachment. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah. well, yeah, well, yes, and not self. I think it, particularly, it, I think is the um, is the is the problem issue here. Not not so much non-attachment, but not self. Yeah, people who have grown up, if you like, with insecure attachments, and and if you like, bad feelings about themselves that come from those poor attachments in, in childhood, um, they can be attracted to the idea of not-self because um, if they have no self, in, they don't have to hate themselves. Yeah, It can be a way of escaping a form of self-hatred, a form of looking down upon yourself, you know, self-blame, self which comes from you know, problematic relationships in childhood. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, just in case there are any people watching this who aren't Buddhist and don't really know what you're talking about with not-self, can you just say a little bit about the no-self doctrine for us? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the no-self doc doctrine, the doctrine of anatta, is that each of us does not have a separate, unchanging self. Yeah. Now that's actually something that's um, 
actually it's a very subtle, very difficult concept. You know, or it's a concept that refers to something that's very difficult to get get hold of or understand. Um, it's also to be experienced. Yeah, and. I think there can be very much um, a tendency amongst some people in the West, and I think through Buddhist history as well, to take that quite literally that you don't exist at all. Yeah. Um, so, and that can be a relief to people who don't like themselves or look down on themselves or think themselves unlovable. Um, if they don't exist, then it doesn't matter. You know that all those things don't don't matter anymore. You know uh, they've got they've gone beyond it. You know. Um, now I think that's that's a rather sad um, um, position to be to be in, and also in, in the first place, and then to to use not self to escape it. You know, it's it's rather sad that people can can get there. I think people can sort of stay in that sort of state. It's what I call a state of dissociation. Um, and even believe that they've become enlightened because they're not experiencing lots of emotions or, or, or anything. Actually, it's just a dissociated state that they're they're in, sadly. And it, it could, could come to an end any time. Um, and then all sorts of um, things can break loose, suppressed emotions and things can break loose, unfortunately. So I think it's a trap um, for people who can think very literally about certain concepts like not-self, yeah? I mean, I think, I think the concept of not-self is absolutely fascinating. You know, it's, it corresponds to the concept, the idea of shunyata, emptiness. Um, but again, that's um, another concept, if you call it that, that is incredibly subtle um, and uh, to understand, yeah, and and c again can be misunderstood, misunderstood very e easily. Shunita means nothing, you know. Um, yeah, you're reminding me of the Buddha's simile of the snake. Mm -hmm. That uh, oh, you have, you have to get hold of the snake, but if you get hold of the snake, you have to get hold of the by the head. Yeah. If you get hold of the tail, it comes round and um, bites you. In, yeah. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, yes, and I think. It, 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 we are talking about concepts here and I think there's a general human tendency to take concepts very literally yeah um, and not realize their imperfections yes and actually Buddhism in its doctrines actually points to concepts actually breaking down they they can't capture reality you need to use them and there are good concepts bad concepts concepts that are true as far as they go concepts that are, that are false but you know don't be attached to concepts um be prepared to let them go because reality is in its nature is far beyond what they can capture yeah uh, it's very interesting, the idea of um, taking concepts literally. Uh, can you just unpack that a little bit? What uh, what happens when someone takes a concept literally, or to put it another way, how do people do that? What does it actually mean? What do, what does it mean? Well, we can do that in various ways. I mean, I'm, I've mentioned taking the idea of not-self literally. So you really believe that you don't exist 
okay so and there are practices that make you look you know into your current experience and you know like pointing to your own face and saying what what's it pointing at actually in your experience now for for example oh well it's not really pointing to anything <laughs> oh um is there anybody watching it no <laughs> i don't exist yeah I, I i'm i'm sort of simplifying but it, it can be like that you know it's it's it, it goes to what i call the, you know the nature of sense consciousness is actually non-dual um, but th that is again something that's subtle and, and difficult to understand yeah um so that's that's one way of taking um a concept too literally for you know example the you know not self it means literally i don't exist at all you know i'm just this thing going around well not a figment of god's imagination maybe yeah well whatever you know um but it, it can happen in other areas as well it can happen in in science you know um take a concept like the length of a piece of string okay how long is a piece of string exactly how long is a piece of string okay well you can give it a number you you can have rulers and tape measures to measure it it, it has a definite meaning there's a there's a piece of, of string um but okay so if you can get a length of a piece of string can you get half that length well we'd say yes say it's a piece of string is a meter long then you can have half a meter and then you can have quarter of a meter, yeah, length, and an eighth of a meter. So can you have lengths that are as small? You keep halving it. You know, does it does it make sense to do that? Well, you can always generate a number that's half the number you've got. But actually, the physical world, the concept of length starts breaking down when you get onto a sm small level, something called the Planck length. And something called the what? Planck length, yeah. That's not Planck as in a bit of wood. That's Max Planck, the physicist. Yeah, With a C. Yeah, and um, there's, a, there's a, a, a small length you can't measure smaller than because, mm. of, well, all sorts of reasons I, I can't go into here. Yeah, basically the idea of... Um, length being something you can understand and give it a number to breaks down now we need to use lengths you can't build a bridge you know without being good at measuring lengths and things otherwise you have a bridge falling down you know it's not something that's arbitrary or whatever but as a concept we need not to take it too literally and of course physicists you know exploring you know subatomic matter um discover things like oh it becomes problematic how, how on earth can we measure below that so does it make any sense to talk about things being less than a plank length apart you know mm. does it make sense that there's a, a particular position in space all these things start becoming problematic yeah it's like we need concepts to understand the world and they're important yeah whether it's in physics and engineering or whether it's psychology but don't grab onto them too much yeah mm. again don't be attached 
to them. Um, the nature of reality is more complex than that, shall we say. Mm, interesting. Uh, let's come back to psychology <laughs> and uh, psychotherapy, perhaps. Yeah. Um, uh, how does psychotherapy actually work, in your opinion? What, what is going on when pe two people engage in psychotherapy? Oh, gosh. Well, various things. I mean, there are different sorts of psychotherapy. And mm. I, I confess these days I, I'm out of touch with various of them or where they've got to. Um, you know, in the past, there was things like psychodynamic therapy, um, behavior therapy, and, and, and so on. And they had the different emphases and different ways of doing things. What I would say, you know, it's based on 40 years of, of, um, of, of, of doing it, helping people change. What I think is important about um, effective psychotherapy, effective psychological therapy, is that there is a helpful conversation between two people. The person who needs help, help and the person trying to help them, yeah? And it needs to be a helpful conversation. Um, and that you know, needs to be helpful conversations arise in situations where the person helping actually does care what happens to the person they're helping, yeah? It's not just... Um, any old thing they're, they're, they're doing, it matters. And actually that person on some level, deep down, matters to them, yeah? So I think there's, there is a, needs to be a, a sort of quality of the relationship, yeah? But I think also there needs to be, at times, it's like there's an educative part of um, psychological therapy. People need to learn to understand their own mental state, say, their own mental health and their own physical health, um, and also need to, um, you know, to understand, you know, what, what they are and what affects them, yeah? And they need to understand that there are ways and things that they can do that can help them improve their mental state and or their, and or their physical, physical state, yeah? So, if you like, the therapist at times is an educator needing to teach people about these things if they don't if they don't know about it you know teaching them how to relax or to do mindfulness practice for for example for example or to um challenge if you like catastrophic thinking that they're having when they're when they're anxious um so there's there needs to be that sort of educative as aspect to it too. so uh You've mentioned three things then. You've got the um, helpful conversation between two people mm. and the therapist has to really care about the other person. They matter to them. Mm. And thirdly, the therapist has got information. They can educate them in certain oh, ways. Yes. So um, I, I was going to, before you mentioned that third one, I was going to say, well, why do we need therapists if we can have helpful conversations with people that are helpful to us? But I suppose... The added dimension is the therapist has been trained and they, they can educate people in what to do. Yes, well, that, that they have learned and, and do have a real practical knowledge of what affects people's mental states and, and physical states and on what can be done to improve them. You know, they actually do know how um, 
anxiety states can um, arise and be kept going and also how they can be um, counteracted effectively yeah so they do have that specific knowledge and you know that knowledge can come from a variety of places you know the work of other psychologists and therapists um, it can come from their patients who their clients who they've had previously who they've learnt from you know what the client has done that's worked for them well that's good knowledge for for a therapist to take on board you know learn learn from your clients um so you can help other clients with with what your previous clients have, have been able to, to do as well yeah and also for their own practice as well you know working on their own mental states and uh, having some understanding um, of that Yes, uh, I want to go back to the idea of helpful conversation. Um, what is a helpful conversation? It, presumably you don't mean that it's when the therapist keeps telling them things. That's not really a conversation. So what, what are the factors of a helpful conversation? Oh, gosh, uh, inter interesting question. Yes, I think talking appropriately, talking about the appropriate things at the appropriate time, yeah, I think timing is very important. Um, and as I say, the, 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 le the level what precisely you talk about when matters very much too. Yeah. Um, so if you say too much, it can go over people's heads. If it's at the wrong time, it's, it, it doesn't work when at another time it can be much more helpful. Um, it's, I think, knowing when to say what, I think, is, is important. You're reminding me of one of the Buddha's teachings about ah. when, uh, how to admonish uh, uh, a bhikkhu, uh, a monk, when they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Um, you have to ask yourself certain questions before you approach them. Uh, one of the questions is, will it be troublesome to me? Yes. Uh, will they like it? No. Might they get angry? Yes. Will it be helpful to them? Yes. Okay, so do it. <laughs> yes. But also, uh, only do it at the right time. Yes. Yeah. I think that's very important. I mean, and you mentioned the Buddha. One of the impressions I got of the Buddha's own behavior, this was many years ago when I was studying the middle length sayings, sort of reading, reading through them. One of the impressions I got was that he was a man who could have very helpful conversations with people. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of put the two together more recently, the sort of the importance of, you know, in psychological therapy and what the Buddha was doing. But that's what struck me. He could be with people and talk with them at their level in ways that were very helpful to them. Yeah, that's what came came across to me in, in sort of reading the, the old texts. Yes, uh, I've read that book too and studied some of those suttas and uh, that is definitely the impression I get. In fact, my main connection with the Buddha is reading those ancient texts. And although the main image we have of the Buddha is sitting in meditation on his own with his eyes closed, for me, the main image of the Buddha is a conversational Buddha. He's conversing, the conversing Buddha in a way. He's so interested in other people and really wants to communicate to them and be communicated to. 
Oh, indeed, yes. And, um, you know, he spent 40 years or more, what was it, of his life after his enlightenment, you know, walking the roads of India in order to have conversations with people. Yes. Yeah, so that he could help them, you know. Um, yes. And transcend their, their predic predicament. Yeah, that's what yes. he did. Yes. I wonder whether we shouldn't commission some of our artists within Sri Ratna to paint pictures and make rupas, not of the Buddha sitting still with his eyes closed, but in conversation with another person. Oh, wow. I think that'd be very good. Let's, let's It'd be do great, it. wouldn't it? <laughs> let's do it as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, there's another topic I'd like to go into with you, Avayachita, was the topic of ethics, because oh, yeah. um, in Buddhist psychology, as I understand it, ethics plays a really great part. It's a really part, great part of being human, to be uh, healthy um, and in your relationship with other people and so on. I'm not sure that um, psychological therapy does that so much. I could be wrong. Hmm. Oh, I think you, you, you're on the ball there. I think there's a very definite difference between Buddhist psychology and its emphasis on ethics and Western psychology and Western therapies, which tend to leave that out, shall we say. It's not not in explicitly there. Yeah. And and don't really recognize how can I put it, the important connection between ethical integrity and psychological and emotional integration yeah i would put it that those two things go together they support each other to develop one you need to develop the other and the development of each helps the other and also of course that um, each of those helps the development of wisdom as, as well um, you know so the, the threefold path of ethics integration and and wisdom um for example is one way of looking at the buddhist path um i think very much the sort of western psychology and western therapies don't have that within them yeah you're reminding me of the american tv series the sopranos i don't know if you know about that I've heard of it, but I've never, never seen well, it. Well, it's a very interesting idea, really, which is uh, Tony Soprano, who's the, the head of a really unpleasant, um, violent gang, goes to therapy. And all the way through, more or less, the different series, he's having therapy every week uh, with this woman, very good woman therapist. And she knows that he's a member, or the, the, the not overly a member, but the leader of a very uh, violent gang, but she's still trying to help him with his psychological mental state. So I suppose that's a, a complete non-starter. Well, well, interesting. She could get somewhere, I think. But I mean, I think the, the relationships between ethics and, psychology, and psychological integration, I suspect, are rather complex. Um, but I suspect that there'll come a point where he, he could go no further. I think one of the most important issues is honesty and truthfulness. Actually, I think psychological integration needs honesty and truthfulness. Yeah, it, it, you know, real ethical integrity. Yeah, and I think honesty, truthfulness are are things that um, I think in the modern world are very much undervalued. Yes, um, I see them 
I see honesty, truthfulness as crucial to human individual well-being, you know, to emotional integration, yeah, but also absolutely crucial to cultural and, and social well-being, shall we say, whether a society is healthy or not. The more lying that's going on, the more untruthfulness, the more fragmented and um, harmful it becomes, I would put it. They're just you know truthfulness honesty so very important Mm. you're now making me think of the buddha's four speech precepts Mm -hmm. um the first one being truthful communication Mm. the second one being i think it's this way around affectionate communication sometimes called loving speech uh, which really means being aware of the other person uh as a person i think oh yeah Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the next one is helpful communication Mm -hmm. and then the fourth one is um, harmonious communication. Uh, now, I think our teacher, Sangrachta, puts those in a hierarchy, the levels, but I'm not sure that the Buddha did. I think he talked about them more in terms of just different aspects of communication. Yeah, I, d- I don't, I, I'm not incredibly familiar with what the, Bu- the Buddha said about them. You know, I, I know about them and I, I find them very interesting, you know, and, and sometimes I wonder about the last one, harmonious, whether sometimes one needs to say something that's that's not harmonious, in fact. Um, well, like the Buddha saying, for example, that you mentioned, um, knows you get to say something to somebody that they're not going to like. <laughs> you know? Yes. So um, I, I think they're very important principles. Um, but... Yeah, I, I have. I sometimes wonder about the last, the last one. You know, sometimes I I think it's important to state the truth. Yeah. Yes, I wonder whether um, it is in a kind of an order. And the very first thing you have to do in Buddhist practice is tell the truth to yourself and to others. Then once you've got that sorted, make sure that when you tell the truth, you're taking the other person into account, affection and, you know, and then uh, if you can, if you've got the ability to, based on the truth, you might be able to help people. And then once you've got all that sorted, then comes the harmony. Otherwise, if you try to get harmony first, you may not want to tell the truth because it will upset somebody. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's all putting, putting them all four into practice is easier said than done, shall we say. <laughs> you can say that again. Uh, but uh, for the past maybe 15 years, I've been listening to contemporary classical music. Uh, it's changed recently. It's much more harmonious than it was. But I was listening to people like Boulez and Ligeti and Lutoslavsky, um, who delighted in dissonance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I trained myself to listen to them because at first when I heard them, it just sounded like an utter unpleasant cacophony. But I thought, surely they can't think that. They wouldn't write music that's deliberately unpleasant to people. Um, so I trained myself to listen. It was quite hard to do, you know, listening to these long pieces of music and it just sounded like pots and pans crashing together. But after a while, I began to sense a certain beauty in those dissonances. Uh-huh. So that made me think a bit more about harmony. What do we actually mean by harmony? I think we often mm-hmm. think it's pretty, uh, that it's pleasant, but perhaps not always. Oh, well, 
interesting question i've never thought about thought about that one yes well people can be um singing along as it were in harmony but they can be singing different notes shall we say for a start um and maybe um singing completely different tunes but there can be they can do that harmoniously or it can be a total if you're jangling mess um yes and some, sometimes to get to harmony between two people, they need to tell the truth first, yeah. listen to each other's truth, talk that over, and then there may be possibility of harmony afterwards. But you don't get real harmony by holding back what you really think. No, I, d I don't. I don't think so. Although sometimes you've got you, you've got to. I think it's a very difficult question because um, we live in a world where the, the, at times the truth needs to be, be said. I think it, it's very important to say it, um, but the truth doesn't necessarily get well received. Shall, shall, we, shall, we, shall we say that? Um, and, and sadly, you know, we're in a world where um, if people um, say something that's not the orthodoxy they get cancelled these these days you know so i think yeah well more than that they get vilified yeah yes go. yes so, um you know that you know that's that's a sort of culture which actually undermines truthfulness and honesty you know, people mm. have to sit quiet if they disagree because they're frightened of the consequences if they don't. Mm. Yes, I've been reading a very interesting book by Cass Sunstein called Conformity, yeah. where he talks about this whole dynamic. Uh, people really want to be belong to the group. They want to be approved of by the group to which they belong. And so very often they'll conform with something, even though they know it's not right. Because if they dissent, they risk being unpopular. They risk being cancelled. They risk being sacked. So they'll just go along with anything just to conform. That's a really dangerous position to be in, isn't it, for society? Oh, in, indeed. I think in a way it's a natural human tendency because, well, I think of things that you know, people need to earn a living, for example, so they are frightened of they'll lose their jobs if they speak up. You know, there are understandable reasons why people, you know, keep mum, shall we, shall we say, um, not just their own, um, if you like, fears um but because actually they do have responsibilities to others to family and, and the like and it's it's um it's not not easy um to be vilified and and suffer the consequences no and of course the uh the buddha was uh in some ways he was a dissident uh there was society and he had things to say about the society that he was in especially about the uh, the uh, the caste system he very much dissented against the caste system but uh, i've been looking at the the texts the suttas which describe him criticizing the caste system and he was perfectly honest but he was also he wasn't um harsh with people mm -hmm. uh he kept friendly contact with people and just told them what he thought Mm. Mm. Well, very interesting and he, he, that he could do that um, and they were able actually to to listen. Yeah. Um, yes. I, th yes. I think, well, it shows that, that at least some people in his time could listen to that and, and, and could, listen, could take um, criticism and with, without an immediate re reaction, you know. Um, you know, that, that, that shows positives in that, that old culture. Mm. Mm. Mm.
Another issue in our society is taking offence, of course. People take, seem to take offence very easily these days, and there are more and more things to take offence of every day, it seems. And uh, what, what do you think it means when somebody takes offence? What's actually going on there? Um, well, they're getting threatened, um, and it's, it's, it's threatening their ego and their beliefs. So that that's what's going on. They don't like it, so they take offence. I mean, I, I, I consider taking offence itself to be an unethical action, actually. One should be able to take all the mud slung at you um, without taking offence at it. Um, I mean, the Buddha didn't take offence. Um, you know, he, um, he responded kindly to people, you know, insulting him. It's very, very interesting. The uh, the I only know of two uh, two episodes in the the canon where the Buddha is definitely offended, and one of them is by a Brahmin who has a name something like um, uh, the Angry One, and he really has to go at the Buddha because the Buddha's been converting Brahmins to the Dhamma mm. and this man is really angry with him and he, he really offends the Buddha or tries to offend the Buddha he gives offense very strongly mm. and the, I, I'm sure you know this story yeah, the Buddha yeah. just says uh, you know when you give someone a gift and they don't want it yeah, they yeah, give yeah. it you back who does it belong to well it belongs to the giver he said well I don't want that offense thank you so <laughs> it's yours <laughs> yeah. but you can just imagine him doing that with a smile on his face <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, well, it's yours, mate. I'm not. I'm not going to play this game. You know. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I think. I suppose the thing I would, would say to that is, though, you know, sometimes you know the consequences are worse than they were for for the Buddha. I mean, these days people can get seriously harmed if they speak up and say say something. So one needs to take that into to account. Unfortunately. But in some parts of the world, it means death, doesn't it? Yeah, if you go against the uh, the orthodoxy, you die or you're thrown into prison for the rest of your life. In, indeed, yeah. Mm. Uh, mm. Okay, are there any aspects uh, of Buddhism and psychology, Western psychology, that we haven't spoken about yet that you'd like to say something about? Gosh, there's probably, well, there's loads of different aspects. <laughs> <laughs> Whether I can say something about about them, them now... Um, I, th I think we covered the the, the, the the topics I wanted to sort of go into a, a bit now. Um, I think it probably take too long to go into specific mm. things, you know, like for example, the use of mindfulness in modern therapies. You know, what is mindfulness? You know, is there bad use of mindfulness? There, there are all sorts of things like that. You know, that yes. We go yes. Into. Uh, you're reminding me now of something that I discovered some time ago, which was mindfulness uh, is an English translation of the Pali word sati, S-T-A-I. And I've got the Pali English dictionary here with me, and I looked it up some time ago, and I, to my absolute surprise, uh, it, sati, it doesn't, it doesn't say mindfulness in the dictionary. It says three things. It says conscience. Mm -hmm. recollection remembrance mm -hmm. that's very very interesting that conscience oh, yeah. or a sense of um ethics oh yes well yeah mindfulness practice in the buddhist tradition very much is based upon ethics and there's an ethical dimension to it when it's translated into um the uh 
Western psychology, that can get forgotten about. You know, I think I even came across once a, a study that was people trying to um, say that psychopaths were more mindful because they were more concentrated on the present and not on the consequences of their actions. Gosh. And I think you've really got the idea of mindfulness completely wrong <laughs> if you think that. You think it applies to psychopaths. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but having said that, I would I would just like to say that I spent a lot of time training and having conference, being on conferences with mindfulness teachers, secular mindfulness, and they did seem to me to be very ethical people. Yeah. 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 Good. 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm glad well, to say. Well, well yeah. But it, it's interesting. I, I wonder what explicitly their ethics was based off, upon or whether it was, you know, they were actually decent people who uh, were naturally quite ethical or whether there was some explicit basis for it. You know, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I suspect, you know, people who go into therapy actually do genuinely want to help other people. So there's an, yes. certainly an ethical di dimension to it. Yes, that, that was uh, when I was training people to be mindfulness teachers. Uh, nearly everybody, they did it because they wanted to help other people. Yeah. And uh, there's not a lot of money in mindfulness, secular mindfulness. You, you get this idea that they're making loads of money. I think some of the top ones are, but most most mindfulness teachers are like yoga teachers. You know, they don't get, they don't get much out of it in terms of finance. Yeah. Anyway, that's a that's another topic. That's we've <laughs> moved on a bit from there. Uh, so I think we can finish there. Advice, okay. are you happy to finish there? I'm happy to finish there today. Uh, we can always come back to lots of topics about psychology. Yeah. Well, you said there's a lot more to say, so perhaps we will. So thank you very much, okay, and uh, I'll see you again sometime. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah.